0: let am take a look at a scripture passage this morning from John chapter 3, um, verses 16 through 21. Uh, and this passage uh, is famous for containing perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, For God so loved the world He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And that verse comes in the middle of a longer conversation that Jesus had, with a man named Nicodemus. And uh, so if you'd like to follow along just for context, I'm going to begin reading uh, at the very end of chapter 2 in verse 23. And we'll read uh, through the passage in chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. Now when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this passage that you have preserved for us across the ages. Thank you for your relationship with John, communicating this to him so he could write it down for us. Thank you uh, most of all for yourself. And just as you've said in this passage, there's a need for us to have your spirit within us. I pray that you would place it uh, within us this morning, that you would uh, revive it in those of us who are believers so that we may know your name and your nature and your face and worship and love you all the more uh, and bring many to faith through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we're glad that you're here and you're not alone. I'm also visiting. Uh, As I've said, my name is Nathaniel Thompson. I am a campus minister, an ordained minister. I serve at Western Washington University in Bellingham. And uh, somehow it's a law of nature that when you visit a church for the first time, that their pastor isn't preaching. And so that's the case today. And you should come back next week uh, to hear Pastor Brett, um, because you're going to want to hear that. It's, uh, he's great. Uh, this morning, we're going to be taking a look at this passage uh, from John. Uh, I thought I would start with a story. I grew up in western Washington, and uh, I went to the University of Washington in Seattle. And uh, while I was there, I picked up a minor in geology Uh, because I discovered that I could be outside and still get credit for it. Uh, And one of the classes I took was a class in glacial geology, and uh, studying and understanding glaciers, these moving rivers of ice we have on mountains. And as part of the class, we all had to write a research paper on a specific glacier. And I chose the blue glacier, on Mount Olympus, uh, an Olympic National Park on the Olympic Peninsula. And so I spent the quarter uh, reading historical surveys, looking at photographs, aerial photographs, learning everything there is to know about the Blue Glacier. Uh, This was fall quarter. And uh, I decided over the course of the quarter, if I was going to spend this much time uh, learning and studying about the Blue Glacier, I should go meet this glacier that I was studying. Uh, And it may be that some of you here are into hiking, and exploring, and, and if that's the case, you'll know that one of the most important rules about hiking is that you should never go by yourself. Uh, but there's another rule, and that's this, that you don't have a friend that wants to go with you on a 17-mile hike into Olympic National Park in November. And uh, at the time, I was 21 or 22, and so at that age, the rules don't apply to you anyway. And uh, so I went by myself. And hiked in 17 miles, pitched my tent, got up the next morning and headed off-trail because the things I wanted to see were not near a trail. And I discovered that day that off-trail work in Olympic National Park goes a lot slower than I had anticipated. And by the time I made it up to the foot of the glacier, the sun was already setting And uh, my plan was to get up to kind of go up the river valley and look at all these glacial landforms, and then make it to the foot of the glacier and then kind of skirt around the side where the trail met the glacier and then take the trail back to my tent. And so by the time I made it up to the glacier, uh, I was already hours behind where I planned to be. And then I got there and realized that the end of the glacier is nestled in between vertical rock walls. And uh, there was no way to get from where I was Uh, to the trail. And so I attempted to climb the glacier without any gear, and that turned out poorly. Uh, And then I began to get a little bit desperate because I did not want to have to bushwhack all the way back across the country back to my tent. And I really, really did not want to spend a night in Olympic National Park not in my tent. And so in my increasing desperation... Uh, I developed uh, a series of increasingly desperate plans about how I was going to fix this and get myself back uh, to the tent. And so first I tried climbing the glacier, and that didn't work. And then I kind of worked my way around the rock wall, and I thought, well, if I can make it over to the stream, I can follow the stream, and the stream intersects the path. And anyway, uh, these plans culminated with me finding myself in complete darkness on the side of a cliff Uh, like this crumbling dirt and rock scree slope with a a stream down below me in the darkness and uh, a rock wall up above me. And it was at this moment that I realized that all of my I-can-fix-this plans uh, not only were not helping, I was getting myself in more and more trouble. And uh, so I cried. And uh, then I bargained with God because what else does one do at a time like this? Um and prayed, and then I, I shimmied along the wall to the right and suddenly came across a little depression in the side of the hill about the size of a person, and so I immediately just stopped and spent the night there. And uh, in the morning when the sun came up, I was able to pretty quickly get myself out of it and back up to the trail. I tell the story in part because I think there are a number of aspects of the story that are common to our experience, Uh in our relationship with the Lord and our salvation. Uh, The sense of getting ourselves in a problem that we did not anticipate and the natural natural response that I'm going to fix this. I do not need help and I'm going to get myself out of this uh, culminating in the experience of desperation. Uh, A pastor I once knew said that all faith begins with desperate faith. Uh, And I'm not inclined to disagree with him. That there, just as Nicodemus had to experience in this passage, uh, a a sense that we must come to that we cannot fix this ourselves. I want to take a look at uh, three aspects of this passage this morning. The first one is just to look at the amazing, humbling nature of the gospel, of what it is that God does for us. That we're in trouble, we need help, and this is what it is that God would like to offer us Uh, We go straight to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Uh, This is a a one-sentence summary of uh, what is sometimes called the gospel. Gospel is a a Christian word uh, that finds its origin in a Greek word that means good news. It is a proclamation about something that has happened in history. Uh, In its original context, uh, a gospel would be uh, perhaps a declaration from the king that a son had been born and there would be an heir and the, the empire could continue on in peace, something like that. In a Christian context, it's good news about what God the king has done on behalf of his people. And the first thing we hear is that God so loved the world. The first aspect the first thing about God's mission in the world is the news that he loved Uh, that I once knew uh, a church planter who planted a church in Seattle and then people sometimes would call him and ask his advice like how do we assess new church planters how do we find a church planter and one of the things he said is if you're chatting with a guy who's interested in planting a church you should ask him what his church is going to be about And inevitably, he'll give you a long answer with all these beautiful and wonderful things. And you don't really need to listen to any of it except for the first thing that comes out of his mouth. Because whatever the first thing he says is, that's what his church is going to be about. And when God declares what his mission, what his church is going to be about, the very first thing he said is, for God so loved. That his mission, his approach to us is primarily characterized first and foremost by his love. And not any kind of love. It's God's love for the world. Not just North America or South America or Asia or Africa. All the world. And in fact, in John, the world. John is the one who wrote this gospel. When John uses the term the world, it's usually not a geographic term. It's usually a negative term that uh, in the same author, John wrote a letter, First John, and in there he explicitly says that we are not to love the world or the things of the world. That when John uses the term world, he means the darkness, the brokenness, the corruption of the world, uh, the ways that we get ourselves in trouble and harm one another. And yet here in this passage, he has God saying that God so loved the world. The, uh, the dark, broken world around us, that which we hate and love to criticize and poke fun at, that God has a love for the world. There's a Japanese theologian, Kazu Kitimori, who during World War II and after, uh, formulated a book, and in there, from the, from the standpoint of a shame and honor culture, he says, all human beings are bound up in shame. That we have done that which we ought not to have done and therefore we should not be embraced. And the gospel is that God came and embraced that which should not be embraced. That we by our nature are uh, those who should not be embraced and yet God in his love desired to embrace us and that embrace causes him pain. And what that pain looks like is his son on the cross. Because God loved, he loved the world, even the broken parts of the world, and in order to make that survivable, he gave up his only son. You can understand the quality and the character and the extent of the love by studying that thing that he was willing to sacrifice, self-sacrificial love, for the sake of the beloved. In this case, it's his son. Jesus... Uh, born of a woman, uh, from the Holy Spirit, lived among us, did all things well. God the Father from heaven proclaimed, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. That John himself at the transfiguration saw Jesus as he truly was in his glory. And to see him that way is to see him shining with a radiant light that is impossible to look at. That is it's barely possible to survive, that Jesus has this radiance and this glory and this awe to Him because He is the way that we were meant to be and is the full and exact representation of God's nature living among us. And God the Father was willing to sacrifice that for the sake of that which He loved, the world. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. That uh, His fundamental orientation, the primary emphasis is not condemnation, but salvation to bring people, invite them out of the darkness of the world. He sends His Son, uh, and the Gospel is this simple, that in order to receive this love of God, in order to receive His sacrifice on our behalf, what's required from us, is to believe it to say well John says that God loved someone like me I think he does and John says that God chose to sacrifice his son for me and I think that he did that Jesus' own analogy for what this is like is this obscure reference to Numbers and the serpent in the wilderness. And basically, the Israelites disobeyed God. They disobeyed God's law. They brought condemnation on themselves. And at God's instruction, Moses crafted a serpent and put it on a rod and lifted it up. And everyone who believed that God would have grace for them and looked up, just looked at the serpent, lived. And everyone who didn't didn't. It's ludicrously easy and profoundly unfair that all that will be required of us is to believe and to receive. This gospel is, um, is the redemptive end of every fairy tale. This is where these beautiful endings of the fairy tales that we have come from. That... It's the news of Cinderella become the queen, who's received the status that she didn't deserve, of of the frog returned to his status as a a prince, um, that the seemingly impossible comes true in the end. It's the gospel offered on our behalf. Well, if this story is like a fairy tale, it's also like a tragedy. So the first thing to see is the beauty and the amazing character of this gospel of grace that God is offering us. And the second thing to see is that, uh, for whatever reason, human beings almost always, in fact always, reject it. Paul, uh, one of the primary authors of the New Testament, said this about his ministry. He said, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, um, Paul saying, I'm preaching Christ, I'm living Christ as I travel about through the world. And people are experiencing that, they're hearing that. And some people hear it and they receive it as life. And for them, it's life that gives birth to more life. And other people receive it and what they hear is death. And it's death that gives birth to more death. This uh, truth of people rejecting this amazing offer um, is why Nicodemus is so instructive, why I read the part of the passage about Nicodemus. So Nicodemus was uh, a Pharisee in the first century, and he, for all intents and purposes, is a good man. He's basically like the first century version of a Presbyterian, because he's one of the few people that actually believe the Bible as God's word, and memorized it, and knew the catechism. If there had been one, he would have known it. And uh, endeavored to rightly live God's law and do the right sort of thing. And not only is he a good man, he's a moral man, he believes the scriptures, he even recognizes that there's something special about Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and he says, we know. We know that you are from God. And Jesus says, you don't know. That even for Nicodemus, with all of this outward righteousness and beauty and correct behavior, Jesus is saying, what is important about that is not that. What's important is that you recognize your need for me to do something for you. And it's very hard to receive. Uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he speaks, and then Jesus speaks, and then Nicodemus speaks, and then Jesus speaks, and then Jesus speaks again, and then Jesus speaks again. And what we're left to assume is at some point, Nicodemus just wanders away. Uh, and here's why. Jesus explains it himself. Verse 19, this is the judgment. That light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Who would do that? Why would you do that? Why would you prefer darkness? People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. And the bitter news is that all of us do wicked and harmful things from time to time. Um, some authors uh, distinguish between the concept of guilt and of shame. That guilt is a sense that, um, that we all live with, it's a sense that I have done something wrong. That thing that I did, I should not have done that. Shame is the sense that because I did something wrong, now therefore I am wrong. As, as, a, as a person, my whole personhood is characterized by wrongness. And shame separates us from other people. So here's the reality of the gospel. Because we all have done things that we would not want proclaimed publicly that should not be done we all carry guilt and then one of two things happens we either move towards Jesus and have that guilt exposed in his presence which is tremendously painful and awkward to have that exposed this is the thing that Nicodemus is not yet willing to have happen And we find in that moment that we receive the grace and the forgiveness of the gospel. Or we experience that guilty feeling and unwilling for it to be exposed, we move into hiding. And we will not share that guilty thing with other people and we will cover over it in any number of ways. And what we're left with is isolation and shame. And from the outside, it can look like a number of different things. In our culture, a lot of times it it looks like niceness. I may have done some things that weren't the best, but I'm generally a nice person. Um, but it can also go completely the other way. Sometimes uh, we can cover over our own darkness with um, with uh, outrage. There's a, a cultural version of this at Western, where I spend all of my time in crusades for the right of minorities and Native Americans, and I'm an angry person. And but I care. I'm woke. I'm working to change the culture. We've got a Presbyterian version of this that looks like um, uh, orthodoxy crusades and uh, rooting people out that may not believe exactly the right thing. Uh, And all of these things can look very good on the outside and usually we're using to cover over our own sense of guilt and shame and isolation. John Calvin once wrote, all think it harsh that those who do not believe in Christ should be given up to destruction and so lest anyone should ascribe his condemnation to Christ he lets that every man should put the blame on himself. That Nicodemus slinks away from Christ. We are all prone to slink away from Christ and the slinking away I think, communicates not lack of knowledge, it actually communicates some kind of knowledge. You don't slink away unless you know better, unless you know that in the face of the light, you will be exposed. Well, how does this become survivable? Um, If we've been offered this incredible gospel, and we all run away from it because we don't want to be exposed, what is to be done? Well, Jesus says that there is this thing called the new birth. He says to Nicodemus, um, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So the work of the flesh is like that thing that I did on the side of the mountain. I got this. I'll fix this. I'm in trouble, but I can fix this. And flesh just gives birth to more flesh. But there's another Option, And that's for the Holy Spirit to do a work within us. That the Spirit can give birth to something that's like Spirit. That gives us, in a sense, the courage to be exposed in the light of Jesus' holiness and to receive His grace. Jesus' analogy for this is like being born. And like being born, it's not something that you get to choose or you have control over. It's something that God just does in us. That um, if you're here today, and you believe in Christ, and you receive this gospel, and you say, this is true of me, and this, this is what I trust in, that God, God does love me that way, and I'm able to share the darkness of my heart in his presence and to have it forgiven, that's because the Holy Spirit has performed a miracle, a miracle in your heart, something that by the nature of the case should not ever happen. Which means that if you've come to Christ, it's not because you're smarter or more organized or more impressive than anyone else. It's because, it's because God decided to embrace you even when you were unembraceable. Those who are born again, uh, according to verse 16, have eternal life. According to verse 17, are saved. According to verse 21, come towards the light. C.S. Lewis, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in uh, one of the books, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, writes about this character named Eustace, who's a pretty miserable fellow. No one likes being around him. He's irritable. Uh, He kind of complains a lot. Uh, He never says sorry. All the sort of things that characterize flesh, begetting flesh. And uh, on one of the islands they visit on the journey, Eustace, finally, he's just done with everyone, and he wanders off by himself, and he finds a massive pile of treasure. And very pleased with himself, he falls asleep on the treasure and wakes up and finds out that he has become a dragon. And at first, this is a lot of fun because he can fly around and everyone is scared of him and he's very powerful and he has all, all of this gold and treasure. And yet the fun of this wears off very quickly because he's alone and isolated with his own bitterness and darkness. And so then he tries to tear the dragon skin off of him and that doesn't work very well. And then finally, miraculously, Aslan shows up. Aslan is a lion and he's C.S. Lewis's uh, Christ figure as it were, and Aslan shows up, and then here's an excerpt from the book. The lion said, You will have to let me undress you. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back, and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like Billy, but oh, it's such fun to see it coming away. Well, anyway, he peeled the beastly stuff right off just as though I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, the skin, lying on the grass, ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. In other words, this dragon skin was even grosser and more disgusting than he realized. And there I was, smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found out all the pain had gone from my arm and then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. And this is C.S. Lewis's picture of what it's like to let Jesus have his way with you and to have your uh, dark dragon skin exposed in his presence in the light and torn off. Um, And it's painful. That's why we all avoid it. Uh, And yet ultimately life-giving. C.S. Lewis even used the word delicious to be restored new and tender in his presence. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus just trails off, but also, this is not the last that we hear from Nicodemus in this story. Because Jesus' work almost always takes a certain amount of time, and Nicodemus is going to come back again and again, and he'll be present in the Sanhedrin at the end. For all of us in our spirituality, we have a need, a desperate need, um, to stop trying to fix things ourselves our salvation, our families, our work, our children, our spouse, whatever it is, our own darkness, our addictions, and to have those exposed in his presence. Jesus' work almost always takes a long time. Um, A few years back, actually about a decade ago, Barna, a Christian research firm, did an international survey and found people around the world who grew up non-Christian and had become a Christian. And they asked them all this question. From the time that you, had a, you first had a meaningful contact with a Christian in your life, how much time do you think went by before you would have said, yeah, that's right, I'm a Christian. And in America, it was two to four years. In England, it was ten years And in France and Japan, it was 15 to 20 years. And so for the people in your life who don't get this, who are not Christians, who are super irritating to be around, um, who you would desire to become a Christian, when you pray for them, do you have a category for the fact that it might take two years, or four, or 20, for them to receive the tenderness of this grace. And you have an apprehension of how difficult it may be to be honest about whatever they're hiding to come before the Lord. For ourselves, is your spiritual life one based on ever-increasing morals and holiness and awesomeness? Or have you ever truly known yourself to be ugly And have you experienced the joy of recognizing that Jesus loves you even now? And if you have something in your life that no one in this room knows about, I would invite you to pick someone to share that thing with Pastor Brett, a friend your spouse, and it will feel like doing so will not be survivable. And it is the thing that I pray will ultimately give you more life and joy than anything else you will ever do. In our denomination, there is a pastor who is well-known, nationally known, Uh, He's a crazy gifted pastor. He's a great preacher. Uh, He's great at pastoral meetings. He's great at everything. The guy is omnicompetent. And uh, he got hired uh, decades ago at a large, well-known, nationally known church that uh, likes to hire omnicompetent pastors. And uh, as skilled as the guy is, and people are always calling him and asking him for advice, he could just never shake the feeling that he was not enough That um, the church was going to be disappointed with him with the next sermon or the next leadership meeting or the next anything. Constantly labored under that stress and fear and shame. And then one day threw his back out, probably partly from the stress. And a doctor prescribed him some narcotics. And he discovered that narcotics are amazing that not only did his back pain go away, all kinds of pain went away. And he felt not only did the narcotics enable him to function again, he could over-function and stay up later and get up earlier and do all kinds of stuff. And so when his prescription ran out, he went to a doctor in their church and was able to get another prescription. And then when that ran out, when he was visiting people in their homes or they had session meetings, he would uh, kind of scope through people's bathrooms and steal pills, and this went on for months and years until he was finally discovered and fired. And usually at this point it kind of goes one of two ways. Uh, Either uh, uh, the pastor is defensive and angry and it's not my fault and it's your fault and he'll hide as much as possible. Um, Or in God's grace, the pastor chooses to be soft-hearted and receives help And in God's grace, that's what happened in this instance. He went to counseling, rehab, all sorts of things for years. And um, he has told this story publicly a number of times, so I'm not sharing anything private. His wife would tell you that she has a much better relationship with him now than she ever had before. He would tell you he has a much better relationship with the Lord than he ever had before. And years later his old church hired him back as an assistant pastor. And he now assists the guy that, wants, that has the job that he used to have. And he has lost the joy of being the prestigious one. And he's received the joy of being the forgiven one. And gets to spend his days sharing with people and their congregation and ministers near, and far about the joys of being exposed and receiving forgiveness um, and having Jesus peel our skin off. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for having done your work with Nicodemus through Jesus. Thank you um, that you have exposed some of the darkness in my life uh, as I am confident that you have for many people here that we are gathered together in your presence in joy today because of what you have done for us. And I pray through our lives and our gentleness and our truth that others could experience uh, that dangerous grace and come to know how much they have been loved and how possible it is to change, how survivable this is. Give us that joy. I pray for RUF at Western. Uh, I pray for... um, Reformation Presbyterian Church in Olympia, that we would be filled with the joy of having been forgiven and that it would be contagious in the communities that we are in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time in your word and at your table. We are in great need of grace and mercy, and you are in rich supply. We praise you. We delight in you. You are wonderful and glorious, merciful and gracious. You are our great comfort and hope. Amen.